0: Hello, and welcome to the Procurement Game Changers podcast, brought to you by Consulting Quest. Ever wondered how the leaders get it done? What differentiates them from the rest of us? Let's tune in and learn from the best leaders in the procurement space. Let's do it. And now, over to your host, Helen Lafitte. Welcome to Procurement Game Changers, the podcast for procurement leaders that make a difference. Today, we'll be discussing how to build a resilient supply chain network in the context of emerging risks. That's why I have the great pleasure of receiving Sumava Laha. Sumava is the CIO Executive Vice President Sourcing and Business Transformation at Yokohama Off-Highway Tires, a tire manufacturer specializing in off-highway businesses such as agriculture, forestry, construction, mining, etc. So Sumava have 30 years of experience in operations, supply chain and procurement activities, as well as in business and digital transformation. We are glad to have you with us today. Welcome to the show, Sumava.
1: My pleasure, Helene. It feels great to be offered an opportunity through this platform to share my thoughts and perspectives on a topic which is very German, I believe, in the context of the volatile uncertain, complex, and ambiguous uh, business environment we are all operating in.
0: Oh, absolutely. So could you tell us, before we start into this exciting topic, could you tell us what led you to procurement?
1: Thank you for that question. So uh, before I get into that, what led me into procurement, so let me give you a context in terms of what I'm accountable for with Yokohama Off Highway Tires, the company that I am engaged in right now. So I am accountable to develop and lead the digital transformation roadmap and journey for the enterprise, uh, besides being accountable for the sourcing and the procurement functions at the global level. So uh, definitely as uh, as, uh, throughout the 30 years plus of my professional experience, I had contributed, uh, I've been privileged to contribute a lot of value in the end to end supply chain. And the end to end supply chain piece can be into the back end of manufacturing, uh, the entire supply planning, execution, and procurement is a very integral part of that. But also, I had the privilege of contributing to the business from a front end perspective because I was accountable for key account planning in one of my engagements, right? Now, I had been responsible for sourcing and procurement roles in my prior assignments. So the role in Yokohama from a procurement standpoint is not new to me. But what I like about this role, which addresses uh, to some extent your question, is the opportunity this role offers to create value in terms of top line, and the bottom line given that procurement contributes to the single biggest spend or the cost line item in the company's pnl right and mm-hmm. the function over the years i have seen has been recognized as a value center uh, than just being a traditional cost center and if you look at this in the light of the last three years in terms of the significant supply chain disruptions that we have seen uh, the function has been put in a good limelight right so now the emerging functions of within the procurement field that is coming up it uh, is the the real supply relationship management the ecosystem partnership uh, the digital framework and most inv- and most importantly the environment social and governance yeah
0: right so and um everything you said i can totally relate to that and and there's one thing also that's interesting about your profile that it's uncommon knowing that you have, of course, that procurement supply chain background, but you also have some uh, digital-slash-IT knowledge that makes sense now that you're working on digital transformation and and procurement, but that's unusual to see those two skills together uh, today.
1: Right. No, that is, again, a great point. And and definitely sometimes the same questions is being posed by... Uh, but many people whom I come across. So definitely, one is the procurement and and the sourcing piece. The second piece is I am the CIO, right? So okay. that is where the IT piece comes in. And the third piece is business transformation, right? Yes. Uh, so if you take the technology and the business transformation and tells, okay, integrate and synthesize into one role, that is a digital transformation, right? Technology and business transformation. Yes. And the second piece is definitely the procurement, right? So the so that is also one of the reasons that I was so very excited uh, with Yokohama having been given this opportunity, uh, which is a very different type of role where you bring multiple skill sets. And the technology and the business transformation stems from the fact that During my prior engagements uh, where I was running the Supply Chain Asia Pacific Operations for Goodyear Tire Management Company based out of Shanghai, I was privy to multiple technology applications in the supply chain area, right? And also in the business transformation area. But procurement and sourcing from that standpoint is more of an ops role, but it is a strategic role for for sure. But but the digital transformation is something which is truly transformative in nature.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to our uh, topic today. So um, we all know that resilient supply chain is a crucial key to a successful business but what if you had to address the risk of an evolving and unpredictable climate? You know, many procurement leaders may feel overwhelmed in this new context, trying to juggle multiple tasks while staying on top of emerging risks. So today we will try to entangle the complexities of creating a resilient supply chain network within an environment set by both expected and unexpected emerging race. So with a hint of wit, I hope, and plenty of good advice from the veteran procurement leaders, this podcast will show you how to stay one step ahead. So ready? Let's go. We're going to start with the basics. What is a resilient supply chain network?
1: I like this, right? So going back to the basics uh, is always the right way of, of addressing uh, what is the problem that we are facing into. So Before I address what is a resilient supply chain network, let's first align ourselves on the definition of resiliency, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Resiliency to me is the ability to resist, absorb, and recover to deliver acceptable level of performance in an acceptable period after being affected by a disruption. And if you look that in the context of what it means to a supply chain, so a supply chain network which exhibits the aforesaid traits which i just articulated is known as a resilient supply chain network and what are the characteristics if you may uh, of a resilient supply chain network so a resilient supply chain network has a good visibility of the end-to-end value chain both upstream and downstream point number two it views and Increase in flexibility, resilience as a necessary investment. This is a very key word, right? It is not viewed as a cost or an expense. It is an investment for future sustainability. Point number three, uh, the resilient supply chain network has the ability to conduct scenario planning for trade-offs across the network, right? So there are a lot of scenario plans which are being generated. What-if plans, right? Uh, To pressure test, right? Uh, To do the uh, different types of stress test. And last but not least, a resilient supply chain network can shift their sourcing, manufacturing, or distribution within the network fairly quickly, right? So, because if you are, if you are down in what one particular manufacturing locations, how quickly... To protect customer service you can change your tooling or you can move your tooling dies and start the production in a very seamless way into another manufacturing network provided that manufacturing network has the capability to deliver the customer need right and the measures of success right so anything any definition uh, goes uh, incomplete right without defining a measure of success so the way i look at it from a measure of success of a resilient supply chain network uh, there are two measures of success. One is time to survive, and the second is the time to recover. All
0: right. So why is it so important?
1: Absolutely. So so are we? Uh, so company. when I talked about, and that question is very German in the context of an investment, right? It's because when the companies are investing in a supply chain resiliency, so there must be something for them, right? So a resilient supply chain network is in a relatively better position to succeed Amid a VUCA world, right? Volatility, uncertainty, and complexity and ambiguity, which is a new normal, right? It Mm -hmm. helps the organization on the dual path of response and recovery. Given that new crises will continue to appear, And on this note, let me tell you, there was a recent McKinsey study, which was conducted, I think last year, I don't recollect. And they did a lot of modeling based on historical disruption. And they told that disruption is going to continue and it will happen with a frequency of six to eight months period. And when it happens, it is going to last for maybe 15 days or a month or 45 days. And if the organizations are not prepared, it can rob the company's bottom line, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, over a period of 10 years how much a company earned in one financial year. So that is huge, right? So so that is the reason, so it is important. So organizations and businesses enter phases at different times. And most importantly, due to the scale of disruption, the timeline extends through years. So coming to your question, why it is important, the benefits are very simple. Anticipation benefits. So resilient companies anticipate their issues, early warning signs, right? You cannot future proof, Right or fail-proof your business, but you can anticipate it. So, anticipation benefit is one. Impact benefit. So, when you are impacted by a disruption, how well you are able to uh, how sustain that impact, right? Uh, and then recovery, right? The time to recover, which I mentioned, and the most importantly is the outcome benefit. So, when you are impacted by a disruption, you are able to sustain that disruption for a longer period of time, and then you are able to recover quickly. And at the end of the day. Many modeling has shown the companies who are resilient, they come out of this disruption much stronger. Mm -hmm. And from a total shareholder return perspective, they have delivered a higher total shareholder return than average companies.
0: In the the recent context with uh, some disruption or you have the covid crisis then we have the 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 war in ukraine and there are more that will be coming Mm -hmm. i imagine you know take taking what you just said that a company that has already a resilient supply chain network will be able to first be less impacted by the crisis because they have at least partially anticipated what was happening and then they'll be able to keep um the league affordable when when the the crisis is going on and then when they realize that is going to continue because that's what is happening with these two events that are much longer than crisis in the past is that they they just are able to shift uh faster And sooner than others and they're taking an advantage towards you know competition or or in their field that is that correct
1: absolutely i think you summarized it very well that creates a source of competitive advantage right And, and it does doesn't come for free it is it is an investment that the company chooses to make uh, in terms of how they're developing a resilient network. Because one thing we need to be keep in mind, there is a difference, and the difference is not subtle, uh, between business continuity and resiliency. Business continuity is more reactive, right? So you, yeah. you hit by a storm, right? And then you scramble your way through business continuity measures and protocol and toolkits and all. But resiliency is being much more proactive and seeing that the storm is developing, And preparing yourself when the storm finally lands and makes a landfall, uh, then you're able to recover and sustain your operations. And when you come out, you come out much more stronger than we were uh, before the storm hit
0: you. So, now we understand why it is and why it's important, Um, let's go on to how to get there. What are the prerequisites for building a resilient supply chain network?
1: Excellent, absolutely. So uh, look, the, the what, what are the approach I'll try to lay out, right? And and multiple research and thesis paper is definitely articulated in a much more eloquent way, uh, but the approach is definitely not exhaustive. Many companies approach in a different way, but some of the factors worth considering in developing a resilient supply chain network, uh, number one, right? Uh, multi-sourcing, right? So multi-sourcing, so people have told that, okay, the just-in-time days are over. So you have to swift to just in case, Uh, the the legacy supply chain models have been designed on production efficiency and cost. And everybody looks at a single source to get the maximum advantage from economies of scale. But multi-sourcing gives you that advantage of switching to alternate qualified suppliers, right? Or to secondary locations, which might be used by existing supply. So if your supplier base is global in nature, the same Mm -hmm. supplier and they have multiple facilities across the globe, maybe one part of the globe or one facility, Uh, let's say as an example in Asia is impacted by some disruption, and then you can uh, switch uh, your suppliers to the same supplier, but maybe from a Mexico facility, right? Uh, And continue uh, your operation. So multi-sourcing is definitely one of those. The second is, and this is uh, the term which we are hearing very loud and clear during the COVID time, nearshoring, right? Uh, So so reshoring and nearshoring. Reshoring is that uh, you lift and shift uh, from far-flung locations, your manufacturing or supply base, And try to do it all inside your country uh, where your manufacturing is located. And nearshoring is located near from a geographical proximity to your manufacturing base. So nearshoring is, it can be regionalization and it can be localization of supply chains closer to the point of demand generation to gain speed and control, right? So that is point number two. Point number three, which is very internal to the company, uh, they call it platform product or plant harmonization. What it means that great companies, their processes, their products, and their and their and their and their standards are very harmonized across the entire value chain. So that means if one manufacturing facility is down and there is a part or a production or an SQ that has to be manufactured to deliver a customer requirement, they swing the tools and the molds across the other plant and the other plant can hit the ground running, right? Without going in for a qualification process and all. So designing standard parts and components across product range drives opportunity to source from multiple supplies. That is more from the the platform harmonization standpoint. And when your manufacturing processes are very harmonized, then you can leverage your common manufacturing footprint across your entire network, right? So that will be the point number three, The fourth approach can be a manufacturing network diversification. Now, this can be an expensive one because let's say you are a single manufacturing uh, locational uh, company, right? And all your manufacturing is one location, right? And that when manufacturing, that manufacturing location is down, uh, then uh, you are left with no choice, right? Uh, In terms of? servicing your customers. So you need to have considered a diversified manufacturing locations. So, so many, many, like if you look at the situation in China, so many companies are taking a strategy that China for China, and uh, maybe in other manufacturing locations like Vietnam, India or Southeast Asia, they will use those manufacturing location to cater their global needs or their regional needs. And China will be for China, right? So manufacturing network diversification can be one approach. And the the next approach can be ecosystem partnership and there is no substitute to that, right? So people will tell, okay, now that goes slightly contradicting to the multi-sourcing, but regardless of multi-sourcing and not, you need to develop strong relationship with your strategic partners. You need to segment your supply base of... Uh, gold, gold suppliers, platinum suppliers, silver, and so on and so forth. And those who are in the top tier, you need to get into an ecosystem partnership with them because they bring in huge value to the company in terms of their technology leadership, right? In terms of their process leadership, or or for that matter, where you can piggyback on them in terms of designing something from scratch. So ecosystem partnership is is an important approach. And the last but not least, which is a bit of a tactical, right? And it can be expensive also uh, to meet the capacities uh, is uh, building an inventory or capacity buffer, right? So, there are two parts, inventory buffer and there is a capacity buffer. Inventory Mm -hmm. buffer means that, okay, when when something is anticipated to be in short supply, uh, which a great example was a semiconductor disruption which has happened over the last two years in the automobile area and that is going to happen, I presume, uh, for the next larger part before new capacities come on stream. So, many automotive companies, uh, they have increased their Uh, inventories of semiconductors right so they don't run out of stock and that is done for a period of time till the time the disruption is there but it can be very expensive because capital is not cheap these days Uh, they boost up the additional safety stock the second can be the capacity buffer for example if you are designing a manufacturing footprint sometimes the habit is that that usually the companies do the capacity and, uh, and do the capital planning based on what exactly is the market needs. But during that time of designing, many com- great companies have started to realize that designing a buffer capacity, which is called 5 to 10% buffer, so in case there is a surge in demand, uh, you can have that physical footprint and infrastructure to cater. The only thing that you might need is a bit of a manpower adjustments, right, to meet that. So these, I tell you, is not very exhaustive from the standpoint, but these are very holistic in nature in terms of, some of the prerequisites of building a resilient supply chain network, Helen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So from what I hear, there are two main things that will lead to all those different options. One is the that strategic thinking in recognizing that you need to build a supply chain that is really resilient. That's the first step that we want mm-hmm. that. It's important to us. And then the willingness to invest because all everything yeah. you said comes with a price. And of course, Absolutely. there are rewards in, in, if there is a crisis. And based on the McKinsey study that, that you mentioned, there will be crisis. So it's Absolutely. a good um, business decision to, to be willing to anticipate. But that is not always the case in all companies. Some companies tend to uh, try to streamline it and be at the bare minimum in terms of uh, investment, especially in areas that are not necessarily considered as bringing a lot of value even though that's not the case, we discussed that before, right. that German supply chain are often seen as, I wouldn't say commodities, but just a support function that is. But now, let's go back to the risks. What are mm-hmm. in your opinion, the emerging risks that would have more impact on, on the supply chains?
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, look, risks will manifest in uh, multiple known and unknown dimensions, right? What I told what I is known and unknown because the knowns are definitely which we have encountered uh, right in the past right? if you look at the 100 years history the world has seen pandemic war right famine natural calamities uh, financial disruptions depressions and and then the cybersecurity piece also right but there are a lot of unknowns right we know what we know we don't know what we don't know however in my view in the near term the risks will continue to manifest in terms of inflationary trends uh, which is the energy price volatility and the associated demand shocks uh, geopolitics is turning out to be a big risk from that standpoint. And uh, today, the third element of risk, which we are seeing on the horizon, whether you are selling that the recent uh, cold wave right that swept uh, the northern part of uh, the uh, us and the east coast and canada and many places right the impact of climate change and you can see that in asia also uh, the the one third of the country in pakistan right uh, which was absolutely uh, deluged from that standpoint so impact on climate change today it appears to be have a moderate impact but on the longer term this is going to be very big then not to mention about cybersecurity and pandemics, right? So for sure, that list is uh, not exhaustive and you can color code uh, this from a red, yellow and an amber and tell that, okay, what are the imminent risks, right? If you characterize 2023, like the way we we know, uh, definitely recessionary trends, inflationary trends, geopolitics uh, will loom large on the horizon and if you take the horizon beyond 24 and 25 uh, definitely cyber security uh, the threat of another pandemics right fingers crossed right uh, it shouldn't happen uh, and definitely the climate change so that is the way i would characterize based on what we see and based on our knowledge on the ground
0: yeah and i think to your point is that even if they're coming uh, in a few years from now we can already start working and anticipate and, and and mitigating. And actually that's my next question is how do we anticipate and mitigate these risks?
1: Right. So there, look, there is no silver bullet, right? From that standpoint that there's no one, a single answer It is a question of a holistic approach and, and, and the elements look risk as a subject, right? To start with was not in the radar of all supply chain professionals, because if, if, if the sum total of all the jobs of supply chain into different tasks was 100, in the good old days, a 95 was predictable in terms of the cause and effect relationship, five was variable, right? But today, it has just swung the other way around. 90% is completely unpredictable and 10% might be uh, pre- uh, predictable from that standpoint. And there is no relationship between cause and effect, which becomes very chaotic. So risk management and employees have and companies have paying a lot of attention to the risk management part of it. And in many companies, they're appointing chief risk officers, sustainability officers, and so on and so forth. So, how to anticipate and mitigate this risk coming to your questions. So I think the first thing what we should look at, and this has been accelerated after the can- pandemic, is a double down on data and technology right? So data is the liveware, right? So people tell that oil has been the liveware of all centuries and oil definitely continue to be that from the, from the point of mobility and all, but data is more important, right? So, so, so the COVID has clearly shown that you can survive without oil, right? <laughs> because nobody was moving, everybody was immobile and everything was shut down, but people could not uh, survive without data, right? So double down on data and technology, because that gives you an end-to-end visibility of your value chain. Second Mm. is the mind shift and the behavioral change from just-in-time to just-in-case. Because as I was articulating at the outset of this conversation, that the the legacy supply chains, and that served uh, well for all companies the last 40 years, it was designed for production efficiencies and cost, right? But that model uh, is being questioned right now, right? So people are moving their mindset to just-in-case. Third is how do you diversify your supply network, which we talked about some of the prerequisites, right? Whether it's manufacturing network, diversification or supply base or, or, or your platform harmonization and so on and so forth. The fourth element can be how do we invest in sustainable business models, right? And this is a big subject, it is a very strategic subject, and it is a long-run subject. Sustainable business models can allude to a circular economy. It can be alluded to different ways of serving the customers. It can have your different revenue options on the table from that standpoint. And the last but not least is the favorite topic of mine is capability building from a people standpoint, because talent management is the key, right? I always believe the biggest source of competitive advantage in any company is its people. It's not technology, it's not its product, but it's people. So how do you build a skill set that will help employees in key parts of your business respond well to changes? And some of the skill sets worth considering is a digital savviness, uh, cognitive skills your complex your ability to think uh, through complex issues right uh, your reasoning abilities and so on and so forth social and emotional skills and adaptability and resilience so we talked about resilience so what about the resilience of the mind and the body right in terms of the employees so that i would see as some of the ways you can anticipate and and mitigate this risk and and get me no get get me no wrong that we are not prescribing a medicine, right, uh, for full future-proofing your business. It is how you are better prepared to manage those risks.
0: Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. And I, I think you're right on, on the people part. We've discussed that before, that the, the role of supply chain and procurement uh, was changing. And the change is going to accelerate. And uh, we need to anticipate what people we want in those functions in nice. order to be able to absorb that change on top of everything else that's happening. Uh, that's the predicted changes. And then you have the, the unpredicted, but you, I think that's uh, people counting on people is key here. So do you see uh, some specificities on that front of the emerging race for, for the Asian Pacific region or, or not actually? Hmm.
1: No, that is a great question. So look, uh, the, the the world economic order gradually over a period of time. Now, I'm not an economist, but what I hear and learn, the world economic order is a shifting, right? From that standpoint, mm-hmm. and and the Asia Pacific region is a conglomeration of developed economies and developing economies what i meant by that developed economies you have one side australia new zealand uh, the pacific countries and then you have japan and korea and taiwans and all so so there are uh, definitely uh, uh, the developed uh, regions from the standpoint and the developing economies definitely led by china which is the second largest economy and then you have the indias and the southeast asia so it, it is a so it is a, it is where the center of gravity uh, from a supply chain uh, is gradually shifting from the standpoint. Now, one can tell that yes, there are deglobalization efforts uh, going on, uh, and how, how to what extent that will uh, change this balance of Asia Pacific's role that is yet to be seen. But Asia definitely will continue to play a role, and China will definitely be always a bit of a center of gravity. Now, given this geopolitics that is going on from that standpoint, it will be very interesting to see how from a geopolitical risk assessment perspective, the companies, the global companies who are based in Asia, what would be their strategy uh, from a sourcing standpoint and from a manufacturing standpoint? Because if I look at companies like Apple or all the automotive companies, uh, the German-based companies of the BMWs, the Marks of the world, uh, they are trying to see Uh, They're trying to approach this, that can can we have China for China, and and can we relocate our manufacturing for global sourcing in other parts, right? So a China plus strategy from a geopolitics can uh, emerge uh, from that standpoint, and that will be very interesting to observe, and that can change the equation uh, from what we have seen in the last 40 years. But otherwise, uh, the issues and the approach, uh, what we discussed, uh, Helen, will be fundamentally geography agnostic, barring this mm. geopolitics and the role of China, right? That is the way I see it.
0: Yeah, I think I agree. And um, to, to your point on um deglobalization, I think that uh, with the crisis in Europe, and I can talk about Europe, obviously, more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. regions, regions, um, the, the countries have realized that um, they need to have some autonomy in those key products such as uh uh, medical drugs and some Mm -hmm. also high-tech products and i think we will see a shift in a way but as you're saying i think that a lot of companies are global and will continue to work globally and that that won't change the fact that asia will soon be the place where you have the, the the largest economies in the world just because when you are so big and you're growing, ultimately you will become number one. That's something that that is gonna happen. We don't know when exactly, but that's that's gonna happen certainly
1: absolutely,
0: absolutely. So, yeah so that's super interesting, I think to see that's the first time that we see the perspective from you know another another angle uh to to a problem that is obviously global. so if there's just one thing that you mm-hmm. would like all listeners to remember for our, from our conversation, what
1: would that be? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So th- that is a tough one, but let me try to take a stab at it. So the the way I look at it is that disruption is a new normal, right? It is not an aberration. So the one thing I would like uh, all of the audience uh, to take away is that to thrive in this VUCA world, companies need smarter, faster, and more agile business operations and business models. That requires big changes and commitment from the top of the organization. That would be one, uh, one thought that would ask all the audience to take away with.
0: Yeah, and and uh, that also means that it's going to be exciting, right? <laughs> At the same time. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Because that's why I'm telling the straight line things. So things are not straight line, right? That that we see in your ECG graph, or you go for medical checkup. If things are straight, right, and things don't move, and then something is wrong, right. So things will not be straight. Uh, you cannot straight line the past, neither you can future-proof. So it will be challenging times, uh, but the companies who are better prepared, the companies who take different approach and approach things differently, not doing different things, but mm-hmm. approaching things differently, uh, that uh, companies can uh, create a source of big uh, competitive advantage for them.
0: Wonderful. And that's the word of the end. Thank you, Sumala, for your, for your time and your
1: and my insight. Pleasure.
0: That was extremely interesting. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you.
0: So now it's your turn to tell us about your experience and your challenges when building a resilient supply chain. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to be notified when a new episode is out. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if that's the case, don't forget to give us a thumbs up. So happy sourcing to you all. Bye and over. And that's a wrap for this episode of our Procurement Game Changers series. But we'll soon be back with yet another exciting session with one of the movers and shakers from the procurement space. Meanwhile, remember to visit our website at consultingquest.com for more consulting updates and procurement know-how and join us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. Until then, goodbye from the entire Consulting Quest family. Have a great day!